Father God, we thank you so much for this day. I thank you for those that are here with us right now and for the, the families that just made the declaration that they desire to follow you publicly, Lord. We pray now, God, that as each one of us is in this place looking to hear a word from you, we pray that these would be your words, God, that you would speak to each one of our hearts differently because we desire to come home, God. We desire to be with you, and we thank you for however the past several weeks we've talked about the story that Jesus told us and the story of the prodigal son, of the lost sons. And so, God, as we bring that time to a close this morning, just be here. Be with us and help us to realize that, uh, that we've got something to celebrate, God, and that when we live our Christian life in such a way that, that we're not exuding joy, then we're, we're missing something, God. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you remember, over the past bajillion weeks, we have been going through the story of the prodigal son. We've been talking about how in this story so many of us have this idea that it is about the lost son who basically is a very visible screw-up, but the reality is, is the uh, holy son, the righteous son, we find is just as messed up as the other son. And when you really look at it, we're all messed up. But so we have the younger son who, who goes off and he squanders his wealth and he lives recklessly and wildly. We've got the older son who through his righteousness tries to leverage God and tries to get a leg up on God. Then we have the broken-hearted father who stands there looking for both of his lost sons. And then we talked about how there was that true older brother, how there's that one older brother that really is Jesus who the older brother should have gone looking for his younger brother and Jesus did that for us. We talked about how Jesus Christ came from heaven knowing perfection and what eternity and goodness is, left his place beside the right-hand side of God, and he came here to set us free, to be the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And so this morning, we have a reason to celebrate because as we talked about, God loves to celebrate lost things. And if you know the Lord this morning, you are found. So take that grumpy face you came in with and throw it away. Because if you're living your life in faith in Christ in such a way that it causes you to be grumpy, as a friend of mine says, you're doing it completely wrong. Because this is good news. We have hope in Jesus. And it's not a mistake that at the end of the story of the prodigal son or the lost son, that Jesus brings us to a place of a feast. Because I want you to think about this. In all that we do as people, in fact, the baptism and dedication folks today are going to be great examples of this. Because what they're going to do following this is they're probably going to go have a feast. They're probably going to sit down to a meal, just as we do when babies are born and when people die. For the Super Bowl... For whatever our thing is, we have feasts. And it's amazing because a feast is really something that is designed, and I got the definition of it here, it's a place where our appetites and our senses are filled up and they are satisfied. And so it's no mistake that Jesus is ending this story with a feast. Because all of history, all of everything that we know is going to end with the feast of the Father. And I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to being there. 
And I hope he gives Brad LeBacken and the Sunshine Band up here about 10 minutes to play some worship because I just love worshiping God. And I'm looking so forward to that party. Amen? I remember as a little kid, my grandma Chevalier, every Sunday after church, we would go to her house and, and she had 12 children. So what would happen is, is on those Sundays after church, all 24 of my aunts and uncles would converge on the homestead, as it was known, my Grandma Chevy's house. And so everybody would go to Grandma Chevy's, and, and I remember when you got there, there was this little front room in her house. And when you got there, it was like you walked into a scene from the show Cheers, and everybody was like screaming your name. And everybody was excited that you were there. And one by one, as someone from the family showed up, there was this, ah, Jamie, ah, whoever else. And I can remember that sound, and I remember the old smell of my grandma's house. I don't know how to explain it other than it just smelled like old lady. (laughs) But I say that affectionately because I walk into the farmhouse here at the church, and I go, smells like grandma. And it brings me back to that memory, to that awesome place. And then you would walk in, and, and they had this giant fireplace. And when you would walk in, you would immediately be hit with the smell of smoke. And there was my grandfather fighting with the flu to try to get the smoke to go up the flu and not out the door every time someone opened the door. And I just remember all of these things. And, and then you would walk down this little hallway where they had this green linoleum that I'm not sure why anybody ever created because it was hideous on the floor. And we would walk through, and then there before us was this big banquet room. When you have 12 kids, I guess you have to have a big table. And so my grandparents would have everybody over, and you would walk in, and there would be a feast on this table that it's the size of Wyoming. It was just amazing. You walk in, and not a single thing came from a box. Not a single thing came from a crank can. Grandma Chevy handmade everything. I, I feel like sometimes she grew the corn that morning, and it was just put on the table. There was apple butter. Yeah, I heard them out there. You know what I'm talking about. There was this apple butter. There was all kinds of turkey and chickens, and I don't even know what else, but it was awesome. I hope you're getting hungry. I hope you're thinking about a moment maybe in your life, whether it's a Thanksgiving or a Christmas, where you can relate to what I'm talking about. Because you see, this concept of a feast, it's designed to be nourishing. My grandmother's heart would be broken if me and my family, we showed up at the house and we just stood there and watched and went, wow, that is a beautiful turkey. Wow, that apple butter smells great. The intention of the feast is for not for us to stand around and watch it. The intention of the feast is for us to dig in and get fat. Amen? Come on, I know there's a lot more hardier people in here that really enjoy a feast. As people of God, we are called by God to celebrate the fact that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. We are called by God and told by God in this very story that we're to fatten and nourish ourselves on the gospel message. And I love the way Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Gods, closes this thing out because he says Jesus ends this story in the same way he brought his his saga here on earth to a close. He ends it in the same way that when he went up to heaven after being resurrected, the same way he ended that. And in the same way that history is going to end, it ends in a feast. When you think about the ultimate feast in the Bible, which is the Lord's table, Jesus was sitting with his his disciples in the upper room and they sat down and they celebrated. And Jesus began to tell them about the feast. He began to tell them about why the body would be broken and why the blood would represent 
or the wine would represent his blood. Because Jesus was going to lay down his life for us. And so when we look at the feast, and we look at our salvation moment, our salvation experience, there's four things that really stick out that Tim Keller point out that a lot of times we as Christians forget about. The first one is, is we didn't go to Grandma Chevy house to watch everybody else eat. We didn't go to the feast. You don't have a party and put crawdads and all the kind of low country boil stuff on your table just so it can mark your table up. You put it there to have a celebration and a party. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 15 right now. Because I want to read to you this this account that we're closing out with. If you have your little app on your phone, you can turn in there, or your service sheet, it's in there. But I just want to read this to you. Because this entire story is about lost things being found. And it says this in 15, verse 20. It says, So he got up and he went to his father. This is talking about the younger son who kind of blew off his family. And he came to his senses. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is now found. He is home. So they began to celebrate. When we find God, it's not meant to be this linear, boring thing. When you go to a party, it's not supposed to be not awesome. And so when we look at salvation, and when we look at the feast, when you look at a feast, a feast is four things. First, it's experiential. You need to be in the moment. You don't want to watch the feast. You want to eat the feast. It's experiential. It is material. I remember my grandma would set up this china that she had, and, and we would sit there, and it was like this special occasion, and there was glasses and place settings. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, our salvation, when we're involved in this salvation journey that we're going on and pursuing God, it's meant to be about material stuff. Yeah, you heard me right. Thirdly, it's supposed to be this individual experience. I remember feeling so loved by my family when they would say my name as I came through the door. As my grandmother poured her her, her hard work into creating a special dish for each person that would come to the feast. God desires that for us to recognize that in our salvation, it's individual, it's intimate. But it's also communal. I used to ask my mom, Mom, why do we go to grandma's and do this every week? And she said, it's because we're celebrating the fact that we're a chevalier. That's my mom's maiden name. I went, okay, that's good enough. Why do we celebrate the fact that we have Jesus Christ as a Savior? Because we're part of the family. And at the end of the book, we win. And we get to go home, and we get to be with God, and we get to go home. Who doesn't love going home? Amen? So let's look at these four things. The first one I want to look at is the experiential. As a seminary student back in the day, I remember my professor brought up the story in John 2 that talks about Jesus at a wedding. 
And at this wedding, Jesus does his first miracle. Uh, to dis- and, and it says in the word that it describes how, what Jesus was about. And if you don't know the story, what the story is, is he's at a wedding banquet and they run out of wine. And so what Jesus does is really his mom catches wind of this and she says, hey, Jesus, do something about this. He's like, woman, why are you getting me involved? That's literally Jesus' words. And so he says, okay, I'll take care of it. And Jesus takes these vats and he turns them in to wine, takes water and he turns it to wine. And when the wine is brought to the party master, the guy running the party, we might think of that as the DJ today, the guy running the party, he tastes it and he says, man, this is the best stuff in the house. This guy's awesome. And I remember as a seminary student sitting there and, and our professor, Byron Curtis, would say, this is one of Jesus' greatest miracles. I would hear all the, the knuckleheads in the room chuckle and go, yeah, Jesus is about booze. That's not at all what Jesus was saying in that moment. Jesus was saying he cares about the experience of our life because he didn't want this young couple to be humiliated. He quietly did something amazing to save them from being embarrassed. He quietly did something amazing to spare them. And and, and he understood the significance of the party. He understood the significance of the celebration. So Jesus really did care about that experience. Not only did he just make the wine and provide, he made the most awesome stuff there could be. Jesus brought the party to a whole nother level because he cared about the experience. And the reason why this is one of Jesus' greatest miracles is because it was in this moment we see Jesus being concerned about correcting the blunders that we make quietly behind the scenes in our lives. That's cool, isn't it? Jesus cares about having an experience with us. Jonathan Edwards, the old preacher, made made a statement like this. There's a difference between simply believing that God is gracious and holy and experiencing it. The difference is believing God is gracious is like tasting that God is gracious. Like knowing that honey is sweet versus tasting honey that is sweet. As believers in God, we are not called to simply know that God is good. We are not called to simply see God's things happening. We're called to be a part of it. We're called to experience it. Don't just sit here and watch church happen. Take a bite out of it. Get involved. Don't rely on your strength, but ask God to open your heart to what he has and then trust him in it. Because God cares about our experience just like God cares about the material things of this world. If you're writing this down, that's the second one. God is a materialistic guy. A lot of times in the church, we preach against material things, don't we? But you're not hearing what I'm saying, if you think that. Because it's not the stuff that we care about. We care about the stuff here on this earth because we care about whose stuff it is. This is all God's. And so as God's creation, we were put here to be stewards of his creation. I don't know if you know this or not, but the earth was never intended to be messed up. That when Adam and Eve sinned, the earth also suffered the consequences of sin. That God designed this place to be perfect. He designed it to be awesome. We were designed to be able to run around naked, eating food off of trees, never having to work a day in our life. That sounds like a young child's reality, right? Sounds like a good reality. But when sin entered the world, that was all messed up, and it was all broken. But one day, 
God desires to come back and to regain creation. He will make the new heavens and the new earth. And all that is broken about this place, he will fix. But I promise you this, as believers who are experiencing a salvation, we are called by God to take care of this place. I'm not calling you to be a tree-hugging hippie. I'm not here to tell you you have to drive a battery-powered vehicle. That's, that's, that's between you and God. But what I am telling you is that we have a Jesus who made a very profound statement when he said, take care of the least of these. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 25, verse 34. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was uh, in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, we did, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothing, and then we clothed you. When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth, that whatever you do for one of the least of my brothers, you did unto me. Is that a God that doesn't care about now? You have to remember, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did not simply just die as a spirit, but he died as a man, and he rose in a human form. God cares about the experience that we have with salvation. He wants to engage it but he also wants us to take care of the things of the Father, not because we love the stuff, not because we're infatuated with the people, but because they're gods. We are called to take care of the widows, the orphans, those that don't have, those that are in need. We are called to stand by our brother's side. And that's part of our salvation experience. That's part of engaging in the feast, is engaging with the material things this world so one might say as Christians we're supposed to be the most materialistic of all the religions in its proper context on that note you think of the Lord's table when he sat down with the disciples there was an experience they were having that night and he shared with them everything that was going to go down and he shared with them the significance of the bread and he shared with them the significance of the cup it was an experience when he took the bread and he broke it and we raised the cup and he drank it, he forever changed the meaning of bread and wine. The material was changed. So that when we come to the Lord's table, we come with a prepared heart, with an attitude of repentance, because salvation is also like the feast, it's individual. God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that you could have a relationship with him. That's intimate. That is Grandma Chevy making a cherry pie just for you. That is God creating a feast just for you. He desires to have an intimate relationship with you. And when he took the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he invited each one of us to join him at that table forever and to feast and to nourish ourselves with him if you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, 
that should affect you. If there is no difference in the way that you're living your life now than when you, than when you met Christ and how you're living then, if there's no difference, then I want to ask you a question. Have you truly surrendered your individual to God? Have you truly tasted the sweet honey of the experience of salvation? Have you truly understood that God has put a calling in your life to take care of the widows, the orphan, the needy? I'm going to tell you right now, church, when God plants a seed in your heart, as it says in the book of Psalms, a tree planted by living water can only produce fruit. And if you are following God and you are pursuing God, there will be fruit in your life, and you will see God working through you. And if you can sit there and tell me that God has changed your life, but you do not have a broken heart for the injustices in this world, and I want to say this real quick. Do not confuse social justice for biblical justice. Christians are making a grave error in our society today when we jump along the bandwagon of putting down, oh, social injustice, that's just trickle-up poverty. Stop it. They're two different things. Biblical justice is caring for those that need cared for. Get the politics out of it, church. We as a church have got to lead the way on this and show people how to do it right and why we're doing it. It's because we have made the statement that Christ has changed us. And because Christ changed us, we can't sit idle anymore. So we as a church have got to start putting to action the things that we say we believe. Because if you truly are a seed planted by living water, then you will produce fruit, not because you want to, but because you can't help it. So church, engage in the feast. Get into the water. Get into the feast and follow and love God. You should be angry that there's people starving to death all over the world. You should be angry that there's little children walking around in Africa right now with tires in their feet because it's all they have. That stuff should disturb your soul. It should disturb your soul that there's starving kids on the north side of Pittsburgh. It should disturb your soul that you have loved ones that don't know Jesus. It should keep you up at night because God wants them at the feast too. It's an individual thing where God is working in your life for the sake of the community because the feast, you see, is not just experiential. It's it's not just about the material things that belong to the Father. It's not just about you, but it's also about the community. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. If you ever have the chance to read it, I highly encourage you to read it. And when he's talking about the type of love that we as brothers and sisters of Christ are supposed to have, he tells a story about his circle of friends that included all these famous famous authors like J.R. Tolkien. And they had one specific friend. When they would hang out at this pub together, they would talk stories and they would sharpen one another biblically. One of their friends died. And Lewis talks about how how disturbing it is that that because of that community, that Tolkien will never be able to experience Lewis in the way that their friend brought Lewis out. Does that make sense? What that means is, as a family of believers, you cannot be replaced. That you are significant. That each one of you brings something to this that helps us to see Jesus in a way we couldn't see Jesus without you. Does that make sense? Let me say it like this. There's a popular trend in our, in our society right now, especially in my generation, that likes to say, I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I don't need the church. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, you can have a relationship with Jesus, and you may not need the church, but you're never going to experience Jesus in his fullness because we're commanded by God to be a part of the church. And to preach that type of message is counter to the gospel because it's not just about you. It's not just about the experience. It's not just about the things, but it's about being in community with one another. In the book of Hebrews, we're told to not give up on meeting together like some are in the habit of doing, but get together for the sake of sharpening and teaching and rebuking and loving. Church, listen to me. You are a part of this body. Christ desires for us to be in community with one another. If Pastor Robbie and I sit down at a table with Pastor Jared and Pastor Robbie gets up and leaves, he can never be replaced. We can find someone to do his job, but he can never be replaced. And I will be missing out on how God wants to work on me through Robbie, Pastor Robbie. Does that make sense? That we're going to experience a fuller vision of what God has for us by being with one another in community. You can take any old house. Let me say it this way. You can take a mansion of a house. You can take the ultimate man cave, and with one person in it, it still feels wrong. But you can take the most desolate of houses and fill it with a family, and it can feel like home, right? God desires for us to recognize with salvation, we have a home with one another. When you say you don't need God's people, why would you want to go to heaven? Because you're going to be eternally trapped with them. Do you see my point? We're created for community, folks. I'm going to leave you with this little quote. Salvation is an experience in the world that we as individuals will see the fullness of Christ when we do it together. God desires for his lost children to come home. And so maybe you've already been found and maybe you just need to, to, to let God take over and you need to trust in him fully, but maybe you're still lost. If you're lost this morning, I want to say this. God loves you. He loves you as much now as he ever will. I love when the, when the prodigal son, the lost son, goes home to the father. I, I've said this several times. He still smells like a pig. When he goes home to the father, he didn't have a chance to say sorry to the father yet. But the father is running to him with arms open wide, saying, you are my child. I want a relationship with you. And he throws a party. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to tell you this. Come up and talk to someone after the service because we'd love to tell you on how God wants to celebrate you coming home. Maybe you know Jesus in your heart. Maybe you follow God. I want to say this to you. Relax. It'll all be clear. Don't worry about those demons. Just let them go. God is in control. When we're anxious and we worry, and I'm the biggest hypocrite preaching this right now, when we're anxious and we worry, we're telling God we don't have enough faith in him. Because the reality of it is, if we believe what we say we believe, then we need to trust in the Father. And we need to trust in the fact the feast is going to be amazing. We just have to come home for it. So won't you come home this morning? Father, we love you and we thank you.
We give you this time.